Hi, I'm Erin Tyler, and I'm the creative director of Scribe Media and author of the best-selling memoir, The Bad One. And today we're going to talk about scapegoating and narcissism. We're going to talk about my journey to hell and back, and we're going to talk about how you can live your personal truth and reclaim your soul. Hey, welcome back to part two of our delicious conversation with my special guest, Erin Tyler. She's the author of a fascinating, deeply vulnerable and enlightening book entitled The Bad One. Uh, in part one of the show, we were talking about the what is normal versus what is a reality for an individual. We talked about what scapegoating really is. We looked at it at a tribal, global level as well as at a personal level. And um, we talked about all the wounded people who seem to be walking around and the difficulty with owning those wounds. We also talked about uh, how scapegoating is going on in the world at a global level. And what we really need maybe is not even just parenting, training, but maybe some better trauma care. And uh, to get to that, we'd have to face the fact that so much narcissism is in place and that it is easy, manip easy to manipulate, easy to sell to. And we finished off that part of the episode where you, Aaron, said something that was uh, potentially, potentially sacrilegious in the uh in the context of uh of american capitalism you suggested um and you can correct me if you think i'm wrong um that uh that the capitalist um culture that we live in in north america um has made maybe has made a narcissist the greatest uh the patron saint of capitalism which would be Anne Rand, right? And I, I have never heard anyone but me say that. That I, <laughs> when I listened to interviews with Anne Rand, I saw a narcissist. Yeah. And I've never heard anybody else say that. I've talked about it with other people. I've never heard anybody else say it. I've never heard anybody else pick it out. And that the and I read Atlas Shrugged, and I read Fountainhead back in the day. And I thought it was a really appealing, those were really appealing books to me in my 20s, even into my early 30s, and then realized, oh, yeah, that is aimed at me when I'm 20 or 30, psychologically, mm -hmm. because I'm driven to get. Mm -hmm. But she was talking to people who are now in their 50s and 60s and 70s, who were running the freaking world. Mm. Right? So... Did I misunderstand, misinterpret what you were saying, or have I embellished, or is it, is it true? <laughs> I too uh, read a, a lot of Miss Rand when I was uh, much younger and was inspired by her. I, I mean, I think there's a lot about people who are narcissistic that is inspiring. I mean, there's a lot of really brilliant, strong, um, intense. Uh, incredible individuals out there doing wonderful things who struggle with narcissism. And that's why I, tr I tend to say struggle with narcissism rather than label them as narcissists. I think narcissism is, it's a state of trauma and it is a protective mechanism. And that's yep. what's going on. There's a very, very inventive way for uh, the self to protect itself 
from you know the slings and the arrows and 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 the things that are potentially very destructive um, in the outer world. And so that's really what's going on. It's just that the self is so divorced from reality, mm-hmm. and so so un, unable to admit any kind of culpability or say I'm sorry or do any of those things that that help us grow and mature and and become better people. So you you said something there that I think is interesting because. Uh, when we look at that, we look at the, the narcissist, the heroizing of, of narcissistic individuals. Um, and at the same time that these are people who are protecting themselves because they are emotionally uh, divorced from themselves. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a level of compassion there, which I, I love. But bringing it back into sort of full circle in the context of what we talked about scapegoating, do you see the direct tie between kids who've been scapegoated who become adults who are narcissists or struggling with narcissism, to use your term? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think when you grow up in a family in which you are parentified at an early age. You are made the parent. Um, you are responsible for the emotional well-being of people who should be in uh, charge of your emotional well-being. You live a lie. You have a false self within you that is very damaged and very underdeveloped, and it lives divorced from the faux self that you're made to live so that you can sort of keep and maintain the equilibrium in the people in your family. Um, and I think scapegoating absolutely turns you into someone who struggles with narcissism. I myself struggled with narcissism of course. very much. Yeah. So again, this, because this is a, uh, like, you know, you talked about that it's, that term is thrown around so much and uh-huh. outside of the, the present. I mean, it's just, it really is thrown around. Um, and, but I love the thing that you're doing here is you're bringing it back to saying, this is a protective mechanism that the person themselves may not be aware of at the time. Um, but it is still protective. And if you have been beaten down mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever term it was, Mm -hmm. you have to, it's your nature to protect. It is our very being to protect. And it's survival to survive. Right. So, yeah. so we're going to do whatever it takes. The interesting thing about that is the, for me, the interesting thing about that from a psychological point of view is that very often out of that comes a Stockholm syndrome. So meaning that yeah. so now you've got a scapegoat kid who becomes a narcissist who displays Stockholm syndrome what that means, by the way, folks, is that they start protecting the people who abuse them. So my mom and dad were perfect. They gave me a beautiful childhood and I had a perfect childhood. My my mom and dad were wonderful parents and they loved me very much. That's the, the language. The, the truth is that they maybe have even forgotten is that they were emotionally or mentally or spiritually or physically or whatever way abused, um, which turned them into the narcissist who now is, has a Stockholm syndrome um, mm-hmm. because they were scapegoated. So does, for me, the three things tie so 
obviously together. And we don't know that that's been sort of brought forward into the public arena or even actually in a lot of psychological arenas. When I bring it up in the groups that I'm in with psychology, like I never thought about those things tying together. Do you mm -hmm. see it that way? Yeah. I mean, how many people you talk to, uh, they've internalized um, and, and almost uh, made, uh, made pain uh, as something that's good and great and wonderful. That's, that's wonderful for you. You know, Alice Miller, um, yes. incredible, incredible uh, psychologist who, who writes about these things. A um, child. Wrote about these things extensively. Yeah, the, the uh, what is that book called? Um, something of the Gifted Child. It is, yeah, I'm trying to remember it too. I've got it Yes, wait, hold on. <laughs> I might have a copy. I think it's Trauma of the Gifted Child, isn't it? Drama of the Gifted Child. Yeah. Everyone needs to buy this book. It's That's amazing. Book. Uh, yeah, she writes about uh, you know women going out and getting their nipples pierced um, because they have been traumatized and they have just accepted that trauma and pain are survival, just as love is survival, just as uh, sacrificing self is survival. Just as you know, I mean, this is this is all they know. And instead of getting to the root of who they truly are inside, which is angry. Mm -hmm. which is hurt, which is they feel betrayed. They had needs that weren't met. They feel neglected. They feel all of these things that are not okay to feel. They were not okay to feel. So, you know, these things are still, you know, just rolling around inside of them like ghosts. They're going out and getting their nipples pierced. No, I'm just going to maintain this story that pain is okay. It's okay. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we need to address that at a, at a, at a, uh, maybe even a basic level, which is <coughs> pain is a, a part of life. It happens. We can't avoid it. Um, suffering is something vastly different yeah. and, and voluntarily shifting uh, into pain means there's some level of normalization of it. And mm -hmm. that for me is, is a very, very interesting thing. Um, I know you worked on Dave Goggins book and I, I, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I listen to Dave and I'm like, <laughs> Dave, I mean, I get where you're coming from, dude. And I get that mindset. It's fantastic. It's admirable, yeah. but yeah. Ooh, it's really difficult for me. I, I have a hard time with listening to Dave because it's like, I just hear trauma. If you yeah. can run on broken bones, I just hear that you are so severely traumatized and normalized that trauma. It is deeply saddening to me. And again, we hero it. We make it, oh, see, I want to be Dave Goggins. No, I don't. Actually, I don't. So I think that that's part of the challenge. Do, do you see that, Aaron? I mean, is, am I nuts here? Are we... Are we making pain into like the hero? I mean, I, I think if you're traumatized, it, it is so incredibly common to to make pain as something that is sacrosanct. And I think that uh, that is the story that you've been fed. Mm. You know, I'm going to hurt you. And I'm going to call it love. And you're just going to have to freaking accept it, uh, it because you need me for shelter and food and in uh, to stay alive um yeah so i i think that's 
where that comes from. I also think that, you know, grandiosity keeps us from falling into depression. Yes. I think going out there and achieving and achieving and achieving and achieving, um, it, it keeps us from actually feeling the things that we need to feel, which are desperate, sad, awful things. You know, the reality of accepting your true self and accepting your true childhood if you grew up in a dysfunctional family means mourning the loss of just about everything. It means mourning. That, that's so big. Mm -hmm. It's huge. in a society that idealizes the um, accolades, that idealizes the collection of um, the willingness to confront that that might not be me. I mean, I wrote a piece last week and I said uh, that some people hide behind their pain in depression. Um, some people hide behind their pain in playing victim. Some people hide their pain in those ways that you and I might notice very easily, but there is no greater place to hide your pain than behind your success. Mm hmm yeah. So the, you know, we become more, I mean, I know because of the people I work with, my clients are very successful individuals who, ha who have the kind of success that other people aspire to. Mm -hmm. And I say, but they don't want success anymore. They want depth. They want fulfillment that, you know, they want somebody who can actually walk with them on that quote hero's journey into the places they've never been because they recognize at some point, another million bucks, another Ferrari, another fake set of boobs or, you know, a facelift is not yeah. going to make me, it's going to make me happier, which is a trans transitory state, but it's not going to make me more fulfilled for yeah. any kind of depth way. And so you're asking people to look at this is, this is why this is brave. This is why I love this because you're really asking people to look at what they don't want to look at. Do you find that that's the response you're getting from people? Like, I want to know now, like, how are people responding to this phenomenal book in that? I mean, are they, do they other it? Because here's the thing, you were othered in your childhood, and we'll come to that. Mm -hmm. But do they other the book then and go, oh, you know, oh, this is so, you know, you wrote so well, you were courageous. And I'm so sad that this happened to you. But they, it doesn't even cross their mind <laughs> that it's them. Uh, I think there's, well, for starters, the, the reaction has been above and beyond anything I could have ever imagined. It's been uh, amazing. It's been really- well, it's a beautiful, um, magnificently written book. Yeah, it's really, really deeply connecting with people uh, who were scapegoats, which is exactly what I wanted to do, right? Um, so the connection has been deep and meaningful and incredible. Um, and it, it definitely comes across as it's something like, okay, I read it through and it was an intense experience and I stayed up all night long reading it and it made me feel triggered and now I'm going to put it away and then maybe I'll read it again in two months and then absorb more. And so I think that that means that I definitely did go there. <laughs> I definitely went all the way with it. Um, and so, you know, which is what you want to do in writing. You want to, you want to tell the absolute well, I highest think you do level of truth. There. I think you, sorry, I, I do think you go there and I do think that it would trigger those things in people. I mean, I, I found, you know, I could see the things in my own childhood from there, but 
what I'm asking Aaron is, do you think that, like, you know, I've been in the personal development world for 30 odd years. And, and I, I sold my, I got out of my personal development company for the one simple reason. I didn't want to be in the recycling business anymore. And what that meant was that people were recycling through my programs and then other people's programs and then another person's programs. And then they come back into mine and they'd all have these great aha moments and do shit with it. Nothing. It was upsetting yeah. to me. And so what I wonder is, I wonder how many people are reading this going, oh my God, this is amazing and so profound. And I had so many aha moments and maybe I'm, you know, maybe that's who I am and blah, blah, blah. And then they'll put the book away and go, I never mentioned that again. <laughs> you know, I, I want to be honest, the work is excruciating. The work is excruciating. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that so many people who are interested in self-help have very noble intentions of going out and changing the world, making it a better place, making their lives better, making their relationships better, making everything better. But there's two ways of achieving in this world. There is you know, when you come from a, a, a family origin where you are uh, achieving for the other, mm -hmm. achieving, achieving to get love, you can get locked into that and, and, and keep thinking habitually that if I continue to achieve, maybe if the achievement is better, maybe if the achievement is greater, maybe if I go further, I'm going to finally get that love. All you're doing is leaving a space between your authentic self and your false self, and you're not really getting to the core of who you are. To get to the core of who you are, you got to stop trying to be 5% body fat and just accept, I'm puffy and I love me. Mm -hmm. You got to stop trying to do the, the life hacking and the biohacking. You got to stop you know, trying to, uh, oh, I'm going to hike Everest and, and then I'll be in touch with my authentic self. Being in touch with your authentic self is saying right here, right now, in this moment, I am worthy of love. I am worthy of everything good. I am a good person. I deserve, I am worthy. And start living in a place where you love yourself enough to be vocal and open and honest and forward with your needs. That's it right there, isn't it? Because... Uh, I know in my work over all these decades, uh, if I ask somebody, what do they want? They can tell me, ask them what they need. They have no idea. Yeah. Um, uh, because most of us have been trained away from our needs. Oh, I need water. I need food. Yeah. But what do you emotionally need? Crickets. I mean, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's yeah. unfathomable for most people. We've been trained away from that. And whether you think you had a good childhood or a bad childhood, um, I think that one of the litmus tests is, do you know what you emotionally need in a given moment? And by that, I don't mean that you get to play the victim and be offended by everything and everyone all the time. That's not your needs either. That's another mm -hmm. version of actually a false self. So you're bringing up a lot there. So let's, let's dive into a little bit more about what it was like for you, because I want people to get a picture of this. So tell us about your family. What was your inside family like versus you know one of the things one of the questions i ask when i work with a client is you know who was your inside mom and who was your outside mom and they go what do you mean well who was your mom to the world versus who she was to you or who she was to your you know to your siblings or who she was to your dad 
vice versa with with other members, other siblings, or other uh, another parent. So, talk to us about the inside family versus the outside family. I mean, outside family was just perfect. We we're just perfect. I mean, my parents were law abiding, likable, sociable, amazing, kind people. Uh, they did everything they were supposed to do. Everyone loved them. Um, great, great people. And, they, you know, and they're great friends to people and they're great aunts and uncles and, and all of those things. Privately, very, very different. Very, very different. Um, I couldn't do anything right or well enough. Um, uh, my intentions were always bad. There's a whole lot of pathologizing going on. Oh, you're crazy. Oh, you're, um, you know, why are you so loud? Why are you talking? Why are you near me? Why, uh, you know, why did you, why did you do that terrible thing to me? And I would think, well, what, what are you talking about? I tipped a lamp over, you know, I wasn't trying to hurt anybody. I just was dancing around the living room and I tipped the lamp over. Um, everything was pathologized. Everything was bad, bad, bad. Everything was qualified as uh, negative. Uh, I had negative intent. I was trying to harm people. I was trying to, um, you know, outdo people, uh, take attention away. Um, it, it was like walking on eggshells, really. I mean, it was very much an eggshell kind of childhood. I never knew what I was going to do wrong. Um, I never knew why it was wrong. It was just wrong. And there was nothing I could do to ever control it other than just be silent and lay down on the floor and like disappear. So, you know, you talk about this outside family, perfect, good parents, good aunts, uncles, friends, etc., And inside it's completely different. But mm -hmm. if I am a fly on the wall on the outside, and then I'm a fly on the wall on the inside, what do I, do I see different people do, you know, if I'm looking at your mom and dad, for instance, uh, you have a, the sister Marnie, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. You know, do, yeah. do I see, do I see those people differently if I'm on the outside yeah. world versus I'm on the inside world? You know, I mean, I think when you have trauma and when things aren't going particularly well for you, and I know that both my parents were very traumatized. My sister was too there's a performance aspect to leaving the house. It's exhausting. Oh, everything's so great. Everything's, we're doing this now and we're doing that now. And oh, ha ha ha, our life is so wonderful. Um, and then, you know, you take it off when you come home and you just relax and, and try to be yourself again, right? That false mm -hmm. self versus, versus the real self that's going on inside. Um, and I think that the expression of just how badly everyone felt, um, all came out behind closed doors and all came out on me. So do you have any sense, because I'm trying to help people listening, do you have any sense of why you were picked as opposed to a sibling? Mm. Why you were scapegoated? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was very observant. I was an observant child. I remember being uh, five and six years old and going to my father and being like, why is grandma so weird? She never hugs you. She's never very affectionate with you or anything like that. What, what's wrong with her? And that is a huge no-no in a family where everyone is trying to just live this, this very nice surface level kind of lie. Uh, you don't go around and do those things. And that's, that is a very common trait with scapegoat kids. They tend to be whistleblowers. 
Like, what's I, what's wrong with this family? Yeah, see, that for me is it. You know, when I said to uh, to a family member, to my aunt, um, I didn't use these words, but, you know, because I was a kid, but it was pretty much in the proximity of why do you keep dating the same guy with the new face? <laughs> like I, you know, I was seven years old and I could see my aunt who was a very attractive, very intelligent woman would date abusive men. And then she would finally get rid of them and replace him with another abusive man. It was, you know, it was like, even I could work that out, you know? Yes. And, yep. and, and I was told I was very smart and very intuitive. Um, but shh, and, you know, we don't talk about that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that one of the things that happens with scapegoat kids um, is also that they are, they're not only truth tellers, but they're, they're intuitive. Um, and they, they, they speak taboo without it being a taboo to them until they learn it is. Then they <laughs> become the taboo. So they speak taboo until they become the taboo. Is that a fair? Yes. Fair assessment? Yes. Um, you know, I mean, like Alice Miller, who we were just talking about, she, she always says that the scapegoat kid is the one who is uh, unwilling or unable to live the family lie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So for me, I guess I didn't even know it was a lot. I was just talking, right? Yeah. Um, and that's... It's not, it's not, like I said, the kids speaking a taboo are not, um, they're not thinking of it as taboo. They're talking about a no. truth that they yeah. just see, they observe something, they're intuitively, they feel something. Mm -hmm. and, and then eventually they become. So they're not only a speaker of the, the taboo, but they become the taboo because they speak the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, it's very easy to then call that kid the dangerous kid and say, no, 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 that's going to be the bad one. You're a trouble cause. You're upsetting your granny. You're upsetting You're your ups uncle. Upsetting the equilibrium. Everything is about that, maintaining that equilibrium at all times so that everything just stays stable and equal. Um, and that kid just, you know, upsets everything, turns the apple cart. So are you aware of when that, when you got it, that you had to shut up and not speak that truth or the truth or what it was you, you were perceiving? I think I was about six or seven when I started oh. just kind of faking it, just kind of going, okay, well, this is what they want from me. So I'm just going to do this. So everybody kind of leaves me alone. Um, yeah, I was very young. I was very young when I kind of figured out that it was not okay to say these things anymore. Was there a safe place for you? Like a lot of people who grew up in those kinds of environments, they had a safe grandparent or they had a safe mom's friend or, you know, who kind of saw your mom, but was, could see what was really going on. Was there any safe mm -hmm. place for you? No, no, I really wish there was. It was art. I mean, I would go and color and draw and scribble and and that's that was my safe place um there really wasn't anyone around aside from you know my little friends that i could um talk to about this but even so i mean these were such big uh profound devastating feelings that i needed to feel that i i wouldn't even really speak to them about it it would all just sort of be well how do you speak to a sibling uh, to a friend when you're seven eight nine ten years old Mm -hmm. about being gaslit because you don't know what gaslighting is. 
No, I just knew I was very angry and confused. Right. So, so much anger and confusion. So at that point, are they telling you you're angry? Are you feeling angry? Is there a disconnect between the two things or are they the same thing? Uh, they uh, would, it would mainly, you know, the story from them was I was just bad. My anger was something that I knew I had to hide. And I don't know where I picked that up from, but I knew that I could not show my anger and that it had to be something that I had to swallow. And so, you know, I would take it out to the backyard and cut worms in half and torture bees and things like that and, and kick things and get into fist fights with the boys on the street and things like that. I was very, very angry as a child, um, but I knew that it was also something that was not, uh, it was not okay to show inside the house or you know, when we left the house and we're around other people. Because, you know, like I said, many times I, I speak to people who have gone through these childhood traumas and they did have a safe aunt or uncle or, or like I said, a friend uh, of the family. Like I remember one of my mom's friends used to walk me to school occasionally. I could talk to her about the things, you know, she knew who my mom was and, and she, you know, she knew who my stepdad was and my dad was. She knew all those people. Um, what a treasure. Uh, sorry? What a treasure. Yeah. And so it was like this, this, it was quite literally, it, uh, we would have a cup of tea and some white bread toast with dripping butter and dip it in the tea. And I would, she would take me there before school. That was my breakfast. And I, she was kind of my counsel for that, you know, and it was probably, I don't know, it might have even been six months, but it was mm. like, I stopped feeling insane for a little while, came back. Yeah. But you know, that, that, that sanity later on, it was art, as you just talked about later on, I would just go in the basement and I would steal house paints and I would paint with house paints on rolls of, of um, what was butcher paper back in those days, you know? Uh -huh. So again, there was that, that need for outlet of, of all of this. Um, but again, gaslighting the problem with being gaslit let's why don't you explain gaslighting because i, I think it's an important piece of your work yeah uh oh it is infuriating it's very difficult it's uh it's when a a, a false reality of of someone else is applied or forced upon you and you're you're made to live this reality that is very different from what you know to be true and real um, and it is excruciating and you feel, uh, an immediate lack of confidence. You feel an immediate lack of sanity. Uh, I almost felt there were days where I just had to be crazy because I knew this thing happened, even though I was told that, no, it did not happen. Uh, you're, you're wrong. You're crazy, whatever, what have you. Um, and it is so ungodly painful. So in the simplest term. It's the denial of another person's ident uh, um, reality at a level of indoctrination and brainwashing until they believe the false narrative, the false reality, until they have to repress the, the internal truth to such a degree. So whether we're seeing that in a global level with politics or whether we're seeing that in a family dynamics level, that's what it is. The difference is that if you're indoctrinated long enough, you might 
perceive, that's the term I'll use, that you have forgotten your reality mm. in order to survive in the environment you're in. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah. I want a much people, better way to say it. Well, because I want people to grasp it that your truth never went away, but it got repressed so long that mm-hmm. you've now. It's it's a it's an infinitesimally small light in the darkness down there, but you live in this darkness that was given to you by somebody else that may have nothing to do with reality, but it is the reality you are living in. It is your matrix. That's how I describe it. You have a personal matrix. Mm-hmm. Your personal matrix yeah. is not your truth. It's your matrix, and you've you've lived in it. You eat, sleep, breathe in it, and you think it's real. Still not. It's still a matrix, but it's so real. Mm-hmm. And you're effectively a slave. You sit around and wait for instruction. What is reality? Okay, well, I'll just wait to be told what reality is. So before we finish up this section, I want to hear from you. What do you mean by a slave? Because that's that opens everything up. You know, I mean, if, if you are forced to live someone else's reality and someone else's story, you're not in control of that story. You're not in control of yourself. You're not in control of your outer world. You have no agency absolutely no agency whatsoever the problem with it is and it's again why i love the movie the matrix is i do too yeah is not is because you're in that matrix but you think you're free you know i'm trying to i'm trying to remember the quote there's a wonderful quote that says um I wrote something similar a while back, a long time, many years ago, which is, um, I think my version of it is something like, um, you are only a prisoner as long as you believe you are, and you're only free if you think you're free, but it doesn't mean you're free if you think you're free. Mm. So it's this belief that, oh, I'm completely free. I have free will. But the puppeteers, and, you know, we can think of that in a very, you know, uh, dystopian way, but the puppeteers are the creatures who live inside of your head who tell you what reality is that may have nothing to do with reality. So, as I said, if you grow up in a world where you are given lenses that are red lenses, you've never seen green. Mm -hmm. Green does not exist. And those lenses were implanted at birth and green does not exist. And people can tell you green exists until they're blue in the face, but you just go, well, it's not mm-hmm. because you've never seen it. So the problem with it is that you, you will fight for, you will believe in this lie as your truth. That's mm-hmm. the problem. This is why I'm saying, this is what I loved about your book. And I loved about what it's asking people to do is, I mean, you said it's excruciating, but I, my term is there are points when it will feel like you're tearing your own flesh off. It's the flesh mm-hmm. of your, your own identity, which is not yours. Yeah. You will have to say goodbye to everything. Somebody else, it's not yours. Yes. 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 However, you won't be exhausted 24-7 from trying to maintain cognitive dissonance. So <laughs> life will be a dream on the other side. It's just the excruciating process of, of getting to the root of that trauma, figuring out who you are and living that story instead of somebody else's story. So let's, in the next part, let's talk about 
your journey into that. Let's talk about your journey in, in, in part three about, you know, your downward spiral with what you did to self-destruct and then the process of coming out of that. Okay. This is an amazing conversation. I'm here with my special guest, Aaron Tyler, who is the author of the bad one um, and talking about what it was like, a memoir about what it means to grow up as a, as a goat. And as in the context of a scapegoat, this is a powerful, uh, deeply vulnerable and insightful book. And I encourage you with every fiber of my being to read it. And uh, if you're an artist, as I am, you will love the book because it's incredibly beautifully done as well. Um, your graphic art skills definitely show up very nicely. Thank you. So we're going to come back in part three with our special guest, Aaron Tyler. Until then, stay curious, my friend. Stay curious.